Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Excellent. All right. We are going to be going, continuing on in our series on spiritual leadership. And this morning, we're going to cover two really important passages. And um, it's, um, I don't know, overly aggressive for me to try to do these two passages in one day. So we'll see. This, this, uh, today's message might turn into two, but we'll see what happens. Um, you know, one of the most significant things that, that there is in a church and in your life are the spiritual leaders that God gives. The people that invest in you, that teach you, that confront you, that train you, um, that is so significant. Jesus says in Luke 6.40 that when a f- person is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And we're going to be talking about the selection of leaders for the church because the way we do things, people in the church, all of you, are going to look around and you are going to nominate people. You're going to look around and say, who in this body, who in this church family should be put in a place to shepherd and care for the church? And uh, that is a very significant issue. Um, Acts 20.28 says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves. This morning we're going to be talking about character qualities, who you are as a person, and how that demonstrates itself in your life. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. God's intention is that leaders are diligent in looking at their own life and that leaders are diligent in looking after people in the church, caring for, look what it says here, um, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You are so incredibly precious that Jesus himself died for you. God loves you. And God intends for, for godly, faithful men to love the church, to care for the church, to care for you. And if you're wandering away, to go after you, to, to God's appointed these leaders. And what an incredible responsibility that is. And so church leaders need to see this. This is Paul's words to elders, the elders of Ephesus. And... Um, <clears throat> So much goes wrong in churches when leaders don't pay attention to themselves, their own life, and their own character, and when they don't see the church as belonging to Christ. There are so many leaders who think they own the church. They think it's their church and that they're in charge, and leaders will fight with each other over things to try to get their own way. And that's one of the terrible things that happens in leadership is when leaders start fighting with each other, Nobody cares for the church. That's one of the ways that Satan wants to destroy and harm the church is to have the wrong people in leadership that will lead to harm in the body of Christ. And so this is critically important. These two passages that we're going to look at today um, are important for every single person. I'm going to give you four reasons why these are important. Number one, selection. It is critical that we understand and apply these qualifications when we are choosing pastors and elders for the church. Uh, And one of the ways that we're going to do that in our new process is we're actually just going to take these two passages and we're just going to make a list and we're going to ask you guys to fill out a form when you nominate somebody. And on this form is just going to be a list of everything on here and you're going to say, yes, I've seen this quality, um, 
that this is true of this person, no, it's not true of this person, or I don't know if it's true of the person. So when, when you nominate somebody, you're going to have to answer every single question before you nominate a person to be in leadership. The, the second reason that this understanding this list is important is because these qualities are not just for elders. These qualities are for every Christian. One of the things that you'll discover as you read this list is this is not the only place these qualities are found. They're all over the Bible. This is just like a summary of the things that God says every Christian is supposed to be like. So as we go through these things, you need to think about yourself and just ask yourself, is that me? Because this is supposed to be you. The third thing is that leadership is an incredible need. People in our church, men in our church, need to aspire to be leaders. We need people that look at this and say, I want this, I want to do this. And one of the things that's really important as you consider these qualities is you can't just one day decide to be this. This, this is a lifelong endeavor. And actually, um, that's one of the things we need to understand this as parents so that we can be working on this and modeling it for our kids. And actually, we start teaching these qualities to our kids when they're two, three, four, five years old. Like that's actually the aim of parenting is so that by the time your kid turns 18 and leaves your house, that they've spent 12 years or 14 years or 16 years developing these qualities in their life. So that, because these, these things take a lifetime to develop. And then the fourth thing is that this is, um, this is a reminder for our elders. We have elders sitting in this room. And there are some elders who are not in this room. They're not here today. But they need to watch this and they, they need to think about the fact. This is what God calls me to be. This is who God calls me to be. And so these are very important things. So in my time in ministry, I have served alongside over 40 elders, like over 40 different men in my years of ministry. And one of the things that I've learned in that time is that the church is a reflection of its leaders. And, and the other thing I've learned is that God is always right. I look back, and every time these things have been disregarded, the church has suffered. And when people and churches have been faithful to honor the Lord in these things, ministry is flourishing, people are being reached for the gospel, disciples are being made. So this is critical. Now I want to just, um, as you think about this, uh, there's this bizarre story in the Old Testament. And, um, and this morning we're going to talk about the commitment of, for personal obedience and the importance of obedience in the lives of people we shepherd. But uh, there's this bizarre story in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, and this is basically what happens. God tells this prophet, he says, go and uh, prophesy against the king and tell him that he's in sin and he's going to be judged and all that kind of stuff. But when you go deliver this message, you are to go, you are to deliver the message, and you are to go home. You don't stop, you don't eat. You don't drink, and that you're going to go in one direction, and you're leaving in the opposite direction. Don't take the same path. 
And so this prophet goes and he pronounces this message to the king and the king, you know, responds and, and he just says, oh, you know, will you please come back to my house with me? And the prophet just says, I am not going back to your house with you because God told me not to. So there's no chance I'm going. Even if you gave me half your kingdom, I wouldn't go. And then there's this other prophet who hears this story and goes and meets this prophet as he's heading a different direction. And when he meets him, he says, hey, God said you should come eat at my house. And the, the prophet goes, no, God says not to do that. I shouldn't go to your house to eat. And that prophet says, you're not the only prophet. I'm also a prophet of God. And God's told you that you should come to my house and eat. And so this prophet goes and eats at this other prophet's house. And then after he's sitting there eating, as soon as he's done eating, that other prophet who lied to him stands up and says, because you came and eat here, you're not going to be buried in the, in the grave of your father's. And that prophet then gets up, leaves, and a lion goes and kills him in the road. I mean, that's kind of a weird story. you got these two prophets. One's lying to the other. Right after he gets him to disobey God, he says, okay, now God's going God's to kill you for this. That type of thing, those kinds of things happen all the time. We have leaders that are not personally committed to honoring and obeying God. We have people in positions of leadership that guide people down the wrong path. There are so many people that in their leadership, somebody will come to them and say, hey, I need some advice and I need some help. And in their advice to the person, they'll actually tell them to do things that violate God's word. And they just feel like, yeah, I know God says this, but that's crazy you know what, this is actually how I think you should approach that. And they give advice that is different from what God says. Instead of understanding that their job is to be a spokesman, to live it out and to teach and to guide. And so that's what we're going to be addressing this morning. And I'll just tell you, it is devastating when we put the wrong people in leadership. Now, all this being said, we're going to go through these qualifications, but I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. See, here's the, the pitfall that happens when churches are faithful and they say, no, we're, we're going to find men of the highest character. We're going to appoint them to leadership. We're going to honor them the way that God says that we should honor them. And then we choose somebody. We put them in leadership, and they think, I'm a super Christian. Look at all these amazing things that are true of my life. I have been exalted to this position of leadership. And then they become prideful. And when they become prideful, God is actually opposed to them. And so sometimes we have, we work hard. Like it's like you can fall to the right or you can fall to the left. This leadership thing is so challenging. And that's why it is so critical that we are looking for humility in the life of our leaders. People who are more aware of their own faults than the faults of other people. A person that when you ask them to serve as an elder, they go, really? I don't know if that's true. I mean, I can think of so many ways that I fail. I have no business being here. Any person that's offended that they weren't asked to be an elder should never serve as an elder. People should be saying, man, I probably shouldn't do that, but if you ask me, I'll pray about it, I'll consider it, and I'm going to be just so diligent in honoring the Lord and, and people who are aware of their own faults. That's Matthew 7, um, you know, the log in your own eye and the speck in others. So that's last week's sermon. I won't re preach it. But here's the five things we're going to look at this morning. The first thing is that um, leaders need to have a godly desire and motivation for leadership. We need leaders, and people should want to be leaders. 
So that's one thing. A second thing is that leaders need to demonstrate a reverence for God in their marriage. Second thing is, or the third thing is that leaders need to demonstrate an effective, loving, shepherding heart toward their family members, their kids. Um, Leaders need to have a life of spiritual practice. And I'm going to use that word practice in two different ways. You can see why we may not finish today. But we're going to use that word practice in two different ways. One, it's the habit of your life. It's the thing that you do. That's practice. What is your practice? This is the way I live. The second thing is that it's training, drilling, practicing. Um, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to just do it over and over and over until I get it right. So two, two ways we look at practice. And then the, the last thing we're going to look at is that elders are able to teach. They know God's word. They are a living example of it. They teach it to people. So it's what they do with their life, and it's also what they do with their mouth. Hey, that's what God calls all of us to, right? Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Not just teaching them what God's commanded, but showing them and teaching them, how do I actually do this? And by the way, that is the great commission. That's God's command to everybody in the church. So if elders can't do that, or if you're not doing that in your life, certainly you should not be an elder because it's your job to help other people do that. Okay, there's kind of a summary of the sermon. So let's, let's read these two passages. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. I want to read them together because we're going to try to kind of hit these topics and, and you know, we're going to divide it up and kind of do it um, you know, topically. But I want you to just read this entire passage. We're going to read both. So let's read this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So this is Paul's instructions to Timothy. He's saying you need to select leaders and this is how you do it. And he writes something similar to Titus. And uh, Titus is in it. And this is the amazing thing. Ephesus, this is where Timothy was, huge, huge city. Crete, it's a little small town. You realize that God expects the same thing, whether it's a big church, small church, big town, little town. It doesn't matter where you are. God wants the same things. Listen to this list in Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goods, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So let's consider our first point here, and I'll just put the, the verses in each passage so you don't have to try to switch back and forth. But let's look at this. Um, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is, he desires a noble task. So this aspire and this desire makes me think of Jesus. You know, Jesus had this, and he developed this in his disciples. Do you remember when it says that Jesus looked at a crowd, and he said that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd? And then he says to his disciples, man, look at this crowd. They need God. They need shepherding. They need care. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into his harvest. So Jesus is showing his disciples, you need to love people. You need to care for people. You need to start praying for workers that will go and shepherd. And then that's what he tells his disciples to do. This is a godly, lofty um, task. It's something that people should want, people should care about. And I'll just say in your life, you know, we, we sometimes completely misread and we misjudge our culture. We don't have a Christian worldview. And it's easy for us sometimes to go into the inner city and go, man, look at the drugs and the prostitution and the crime and the poverty. Oh, man, these people need the Lord. And then you can come to an area like RSM or Mission Viejo, and you can look around and go, man, these people are really well off. They're successful. They have good jobs. Um, and somehow we think that those things matter. You know, rich people and people who are successful need God just as much as somebody poor growing up on the street. I think about in Revelation where it talks about the great white throne judgment and people standing before God on judgment day, and it just says the, the great and the small are going to stand before God. The Bill Gates and the homeless man will stand before God and be judged. Everybody needs Christ, and as Christians, we should have a heart to reach people with the gospel. If you look around your town or if you see rich, famous people and think, oh, man, they're great. They, they have it all together. Oh, they're so lucky. If you view life that way instead of realizing everybody needs Christ and there's brokenness everywhere, there's brokenness in the inner city, and there's brokenness living around Mission Viejo Lake in these massive million-dollar homes. There's brokenness everywhere, and every person needs Christ. And so, as Christians, we should have a heart. We need elders that look around at the church and say, people need help knowing, loving God, being encouraged, being cared for. Um, aspiring to that is a good thing. That, that's a noble task. It needs to be done. Now, it's noble when a person wants to care for people. It is not noble when a person wants to be, kind of have their own kingdom and be in charge and feel like this is my church. That's one of the things that, you know, it's okay to say this is my church, like saying this is my family, you know, I'm a part of it. But I try to avoid ever doing that. I, I don't, when I'm going away to people and people say, how's your church? It's not my church. 
I'm just here serving the Lord. You are God's flock that he purchased with his own blood. Jeremiah 45.5 says this, But are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. So here's one of the ways that you know um, when you're thinking about who to nominate as an elder. Look around. Who's doing the shepherding? Who's caring for people? When you are struggling with sin, let's just say you, you know what God says and you make a decision to disobey what God says. Who comes to you and says, I love you, I care about you, I see you, you're, you're, you're making a decision that's sinful that God says you shouldn't do. Who's had that conversation with you? Or do you just walk off the spiritual cliff and nobody talks to you? Who cares enough about you to shepherd you, to step into your life in a gracious, loving way? Galatians 6, um, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you not be tempted. Not somebody who's enjoying putting a notch. I went and told, oh, I told them this. You know, but somebody who, because of a compassionate, loving heart, steps into your life. Um, you always know who wants to do that. You know how? They're doing it. When, when I used to hire people, um, we'd, we'd send out things to hire different people who'd gone to college, graduated from college, graduated from seminary. And one of the things I always asked these people that applied for pastoral positions, I'd say, um, so when you were in college, where were, what ministry were you fo- fu- um, functioning in? Uh, when you were in seminary, what ministry were you functioning in? And there are very talented, very gifted people that I just toss their resume. And I tossed it because there's a lot of people like, I got seven years. I got four years to get through college and then three years to get through seminary. And in that seven years, I really need to dedicate myself to studying and getting my homework done and getting good grades. And they were focused on that. And I just think you're studying for ministry, but you don't care enough to be involved in ministry. You're not saying, you're saying you're going to wait seven years to shepherd and care for people? No, thank you. Um, I'm, you want to hire people. You want to put people in leadership who have such a heart and such a desire, they're willing to get a B or a C instead of an A so that they can spiritually care for people. What in your life demonstrates that you care about shepherding people? Because if you're not doing it, then you don't want to. And by the way, First, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, right? The purpose of elders and pastors are to teach people in the church to do the work of ministry. The building up of the body of Christ, that's all of our jobs. That's not just for elders, that is for every Christian. We don't just show up and sit here on Sunday morning and then go home and we don't function and serve and use our gifts. Like that's one of the bummers about having one service is that you have to choose, am I in church or do I teach Sunday school? You know, but the truth is, normal, healthy Christian behavior, if we had two services, you would just say, hey, Craig, you don't need to schedule me once a month. I'll do it every week. I'll show up every single morning, and I will teach students, and then I'll go to church. Church is two services. We, we show up. We function. We use our gifts. Why? Because this is significant. It matters. And we're going to just use our gifts to build people up. But there's a lot of people who feel like church is a performance. And I'll just show up and I'll watch and then I'll go home. No, we go to life groups. I remember my kids, they would go to Sunday school. And one of my kids used to say, man, I I hate Sunday school. There's nobody my age there. And I used to say, wow, okay, so there's nobody nobody your age. or Actually, it was nobody his gender. 
Oh, now you know I'm talking about one of my boys. Oops. He's <laughs> like, I hate, I hate Sunday school. There's, I, there, I have no friends. There's nobody my gender in that Sunday school class. And I just said, you know, actually, you're not going there just for you. You need to go to Sunday school, and here's why you need to be there. Do you like being the only boy in your class? No. What if a family visits and they bring their son and you're not there? That boy is going to be all by himself. You need to be there so that you can be a help and an encouragement to any other boys your age that show up. Here's the other thing. You have a teacher that's been, that's been studying, that's been preparing a lesson, and you need to show up so that you can see your teacher and be thankful for her and be an encouragement to him or her that's teaching you Sunday school and so that they're not teaching in an empty room. And you need to look at them and nod and show that you're learning to encourage them for showing up to teach you. And you need to be praying for your teacher even right now because they're getting ready to speak from God to you. And so you need to be there because God has something to tell you and he's going to tell you through your teacher. So make sure that you show up. And if you don't like Sunday school for the reasons you're giving me, you are not thinking about your life. You're not thinking about church correctly. We're all here to use our gifts and to build each other up. It's why we show up. When I go on vacation, I try to always come back on Saturday. This is not a legalistic thing, but it's because I want to be here. I want to be an encouragement. If Craig's preaching, I want to sit back there and watch him and nod and be engaged and, and be, a, be an encouragement. I love seeing you guys. It doesn't, it's not wrong to miss church. Um, so if I really needed to, the time or there was a good reason for me to not come back on Saturday, I wouldn't, but I almost always do. It's because I want to be here. And when I don't come here on Saturday, wherever I am, I find a church and go. And there's all kinds of blessings and benefits from that. But there's a lot of people that their leadership is all about them. When they're leading a life group, they want everyone to come. When they're a part of somebody else's life group, they're not interested in coming. One time we had a speaker at one of our retreats, and we're talking to the speaker, and and this, this person used to attend another church. They were a pastor on staff, and some things went down at the church, and they left. It had been a, had been a year, and just asking, so what church are you going to? And they're like, oh, yeah, we haven't, we haven't found a church yet. They were really hurt, and they quit going to church. <laughs> and they're speaking at this place. I was, I'm just thinking, you should never ask a person to speak that doesn't actually go to church. I don't care how hurt you've been in church or what's gone wrong in your life. Christians leave one church and they go to another if they have to leave. If something blows up, they don't miss, they don't miss a Sunday. Um, I spent six months between my last church and this church. And I wasn't like keeping track, but I don't think I missed a single Sunday. Because I knew I needed it and because I wanted to be in church to be a help and an encouragement. I said to the pastor that I was visiting, I'm like, hey, I can do anything. I could teach a Bible study. I could do whatever you want. So if I can help you, I'll help. Um, there was a neighborhood of apartments th- next to the church. I just said, hey, I, if you want, I'll just go door to door and invite people. You walk by this apartment building, you smell pot coming out of it, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. I'm just like, hey, if you want, I'll just go door to door and invite people to church. I'm, I don't know how long I'll be here. But as long as I'm here, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And uh, he didn't ask me to do anything, so we, he's like, that's ah, okay. I, I already went to everybody over there and invited them. <laughs> but Christians and leaders are people who aspire to leadership and shepherding and care. Here's the next thing. Not a bad motivation, not a lover of money, not greedy for gain. There's all kinds of wrong motivations. But here's the second one. A reverence for God in marriage. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, Titus, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife. Above reproach is this overarching character. We'll talk about that maybe next week. But um, as, as an overarching character quality that describes everything on this list. But the very first thing mentioned is the marriage. The husband of one wife. So that's kind of a debated thing. It's like, uh, does it mean that you, can o- that you have to be married? Does it mean that you can only be married to one person? So if you got divorced and remarried, you're disqualified. Or if your spouse died and you got remarried, you're disqualified. It's only people who are married and who have been married once. Is the emphasis of this polygamy that you can't be married to two or three people? I mean, we, we know that in the Old Testament, people were married to multiple people. So I don't personally believe it's those things. I think that what it's talking about is that you are a one-woman man. And there, I- there are some reasons for that. Um, one reason is this exact phrase is used of widows. And it's saying that a woman is only to be put on the list of widows if she is, has been the wife of one husband. It's the same phrase. But what does Paul tell younger widows to do? He instructs them, if you're a younger widow, get remarried. So if Paul's telling younger widows to get remarried and then later that's going to disqualify them from being supported by the church, I don't think so. That's, that's a righteous, godly thing to do. So I think that the emphasis here is that you are a one-woman man. You are somebody who's devoted and committed to your wife. You love your wife. You are faithful to your wife. And that, that's a, a current quality. It is loyalty, devotion. Um, Proverbs, in talking about sexual immorality, says don't desire a foreigner, a stranger, but always be exhilarated by, the, the, by your wife. We're supposed to love our wives. That is a choice. Uh, people fall in and out of loves. God tells us to love our spouse. So if you've fallen out of love with your wife, it's your job to learn how to fall back in love with her. This whole idea of, oh, man, well, we love each other, we don't love each other. Now we, that, that has nothing to do with Christianity. You love your spouse. And this is that quality, that you're committed. And there's a reverence. Like, think about this. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's talking about marriage, and he says this. He says, um, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church Your marriage is a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. If you have a reverence for God, that is going to bring with it a reverence for your marriage. You're going to love your wife knowing that, that I'm supposed to love my wife the way Christ loves the church. And I'm supposed to give myself up for her. And in fact, loving your wife, it says, is loving yourself. And that your job in your wife's life is to encourage her godliness through the washing of water with the word. So you're praying for your wife. Your goal when you get married is to love your wife, to sacrifice for her, and to be an influence of godliness in her life. That's why last week um, when I said if your wife is um, a terrible wife, it's your fault. (laughs) Okay, everybody's responsible for themselves. Nobody can control another person. But I just want to say this, that If you've been married for 15 or 20 years, is your wife more faithful and more godly because of your example and your love and your diligence? And are you willing to address sin issues when you see them? 
Are you willing to humbly serve? Are you making sure that she is in an environment where she can be encouraged and built up? Are you making sure she's in church? Do you encourage her to be plugged in and involved in ladies' Bible studies and developing good friends that when she starts to struggle spiritually, there's other people to step into her life and be a help? That's one of the reasons I want Michelle in church. If she ever decides she likes the neighbor more than me, I'm going to say, Michelle, don't do that. You've got to stay married to me. God says that. And I want everybody in this church to go talk to her too. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I've done with my kids. Like I want them plugged in. I want them to have these good relationships. Because one day when my kids are struggling and they won't listen to me, I want to be, call, be able to call other people who can reach into their life. And they'll go, yeah, I remember when you took me camping and when I was really struggling and I talked to you and you cared for me and you encouraged me. And now you're calling me and saying, live rightly before the Lord. And so marriage, it is a, it's a reverence for marriage. Um, so many marriages have so many difficulties and conflicts and they're unnecessary. It's not that they don't happen. Michelle and I have had plenty and we still have plenty. Um, Ken and uh, our daughter, our future son-in-law moved in with us. And it's like, oh, great. <laughs> no, we love it. But, you know, it's like it's one thing when your kids see you at your weak moments. I'm sure in the next few months he's going to see me and Michelle at some lo low moments. We still have them. And, but we're working on improving that and being an encouragement to each other. But we still struggle. We don't ha we're not done with all the stuff we need to work on. But it's that, it's that commitment in marriage to continue honoring the Lord and striving. So here's another one. Um, it is a... Effective, loving, shepherding heart toward his family. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he ch care for the church of God? Titus 1, 6. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is a pretty significant quality, and I'll just tell you why. What it takes to raise and disciple and be a godly influence in your kid's life is the exact same thing it takes at church. The things you do in your family are the same things you do at home. Um, we are God's family, and from the time our kids are young, we have their spiritual well-being in mind. Like, think about how anger affects homes. Think about how pridefulness affects homes. Think about how bitterness and a lack of gentleness, and a, which gentleness, by the way, is two things. We'll talk about that, but it's that softness, but it's also power under control. It's being willing to stand in front of your kids when they're trying to do the wrong thing and say, no, you will not do this. And, and it's as, as a parent thinking through, if you make these choices, you put yourselves in these positions, you do these things, that's going to lead to harm and ungodliness. And are you willing to take a hard stand and say no? Are you willing to be hated by your kids in those moments where they want to do the wrong thing and you're saying no? Um, do you set an example of what your kids are supposed to be like? What's your influence like in your family? Um, you know, it says that if you can't manage your own household, you can't manage the church of God. And in a sense, that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. But I would say it's not lesser or greater heart. It's not a lesser or greater affection. It's lesser or greater in extent. You know, you might have one, two, three, four, five, or seven kids. 
and you're an authority over them. Just think about this when I was a youth pastor. My ability to shepherd kids was so much less than their parents. Everybody used to say to me, oh, man, you're the youth pastor. You have the great influence on my kids' life. We're the parents, and our kids don't want to listen to us. That's wrong thinking. As a parent, you are the most influential person in your kid's life. I used to talk to kids who are like, i got to get home tonight because there's this show on HBO I like to watch. It was like porn. And I used to say, you know, you're a Christian and you shouldn't watch that. And I could give them all kinds of advice. But guess what? I couldn't turn the TV off and say, no, you're not watching that. We're not subscribing to HBO. I had no control. I had no power, no ability to discipline. I only had the, the ability to influence and advise. And so for, in a sense, you have way more power as a parent than you do as a pastor or an elder. The other thing is that people are much closer to you and they see your life. They see your character. They see how it lives out. And I know a lot of parents who say things like, well, if I really step in in this situation, well, you hear people say things like, don't tell them not to do it. If, they, if you tell them not to do it, they're just going to do it even more. No. Uh, you teach your kids. You help them understand, I'm telling you not to do this, and this is why you can't do this, do this and I'm going to use every bit of power and influence I have. Like at a certain point, my kids were doing certain things. I'd take their car keys away and say, oh, Dad, i got to drive to work. I don't care. I'm going to get fired. I don't care. You're going to do these things or I will have nothing to support you in your life. I will never help you walk down a road to destruction. And just taking a hard stand but not an unloving stand. But being willing to do those hard things and to shepherd and to care. And when you think your kids are in trouble, there's times that parents think their kids are in trouble and they don't want to see. They don't want to know because they don't want to have to deal with it. See, as a parent, it's not just your job to, see, to deal with what you see. It is your job to see the things you need to deal with and then to be willing to, to reach out and go get those things and go address them. Um, there was a t- you know, we put our kids in public school because we wanted them to learn how to evangelize and how to function and how to deal with the inappropriate things that happened in school. So they taught our kids all kinds of crazy stuff. I used to volunteer in the kindergarten classroom so I'd n- kind of know what was coming and who was there and that kind of stuff. And I knew people in the school, and I would sit down with my kids. I didn't keep them home when they were going to teach inappropriate sexual things. No, I just sat down with my kids beforehand. I said, okay, um, this tomorrow when you go to school, they're going to teach you this. And this is what God says about this. And here's how you should think about this. And this is how this impacts your friends. This is how this impacts people in school. Send them off to school. At a certain point, I realized between sixth grade and seventh grade that one of my kids was in trouble. And they were in trouble because they were trying to fit into the world. They, they were influenced by the people around them, very influenced by their friends. It was going to be spiritually destructive. And so we homeschooled our kid that next two years. Because we said, you know what, we want you to learn, but we don't want you to become part of that. And right now, you are in danger of becoming part of that. So we hated homeschooling. We never wanted to homeschool, but we did it because we loved our kids. And then we put them back into a public school for high school. And so the thing is, is that that this diligence, by the way, that's absent in a lot of church leaders. There's people in the congregation wandering off into sin and nobody knows or nobody talks to them or nobody cares enough. They'd rather be liked than address sin issues. And when they do go address sin issues, a lot of times it's not gracious, it's not gentle, it's not humble. 
And the other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of people who, who say, hey, if you're going to be a pastor, you better manage your household well, because if you don't, you're going to be disqualified from ministry. And I always think to myself, um, why would I think to myself, I better be a good parent so I could be a pastor? What? I care so much more about the spiritual well-being of my kids than I do about this job. Um, I would way rather give my life to caring for my kids. And that's one of the things that helped me balance my time is I actually love my kids more than I love people in church. But this is the other thing that I also learned is that you can't be a good parent if you are not a good pastor. The church doesn't hire people to just sit home and take care of their, their kids. Nobody else does that. Everybody has a job that they have to leave and go to work. And so part of being a good parent to my kids was being diligent and working hard as a pastor. And so this shepherding of kids is a huge thing. It's very important. And, and I know that th this is one of the things that we, get, we need to realize too. Like we don't disregard any of these things, but nobody's in control of another person. You cannot make anybody do anything. And so to realize that salvation and faithfulness and godliness, that is a work of God in someone's heart. Michelle and I, we really were diligent. We did the best we could as parents. But I, I can just draw a line from my failures as a parent to things that my kids struggle with. And I also have seen people that, I look at my kids, it is where, however, wherever they are, that is God's grace in their life. It's not because I was an expert. It's not because we did everything right. We did care. We did try. But we don't get the the. the the responsibility of where they are. And if our kids disregard God, we don't have the credit for that either. What it comes down to is I've seen terrible parents who don't guide their kids. They don't teach them. They don't instruct them. And these kids walk faithfully with the Lord because God works in their life. And then you see other people who are diligent. They're working hard to shepherd and care for their kids. And their kids are foolish. And they disregard the things that they're telling them. But here's, the, here's what it comes down to. If you won't shepherd your own kids, you will not shepherd people in the church. If you're not living in a way that is faithful and that that is a godly influence and living with wisdom in your life, you will not do that in the church. Um, we're going to come back to the next two points next week. Michelle's happy. She's like, wow, did two sermons worth of studying in one week. But I want to just say this, that, that what it comes down to ultimately is if you're going to be in a position of spiritual leadership, do you know what God says? Do you trust what God says? Are you practicing obeying what God says? And is that what you're handing off? Is that how you're, the, the same way you live your life, the same way you think about the world, that's the way you train and teach your kids? Um, because really that's, that's all these things, and this is what God wants. He, God's not looking for perfect people. I'm going to give you my conclusion, and we'll give this again next week. So how do you become spiritually mature? These are the steps for spiritual maturity. The first one is you read the Bible every day. Every single day, you make time to read the Bible from beginning to end, the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know that crazy story about the prophet who lied to the other prophet? 
There are so many things like that in the Old Testament that you need to read and that you need to hear and that you need to think about because they inform your life. The entire Bible is an expression of God and his, his word and how he works in life and how he works with people and his grace and his mercy and the harm of disobedience so that we see life for what it is. The second thing is that you need to work on demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit every day. And that's our next point that we'll get to next week. But every single day you think, what is the fruit of the Spirit and how do I live this out? And you are purposeful and diligent to do it but to practice it. And when you mess up, you're like, okay, good. God will give me another chance to practice this the next day. But you work on developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in every relationship. You love your wife and you be gentle Gentle is softness, but power as well. Um, you, you love and shepherd and guide your kids. You function in the body of Christ, both being built up and building up other people. These are the steps that lead to spiritual maturity, and this is the path every single one of us needs to be on. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word. The, the calling for leadership is so huge. And Lord, none of us are worthy of it. We all fail constantly. We're weak. We think about Psalm 127, that unless you build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Lord, you're the, you're the reason that people are faithful and come to know you, but help us to be diligent. Help us to be careful. Help us not to live life thinking that life is just random and it's accidental and, and pain and sorrow just kind of randomly happen. Lord, help us to realize that being on your path is the path we need to be on, and that's what's best for us, and that's what's best for everybody. And God, I pray that you would raise up godly, faithful leaders in this church, and that, Lord, it wouldn't just be the leaders, just that every single person would be godly and faithful, that they would love you, that they would trust you, that they would obey you. And, Lord, I pray that this church would never be a place that's hard on people, kicking people when they're down, being judgmental, looking down their nose. Lord, we all need your mercy, and I just pray that we would pour out mercy on other people, the same mercy that we've received from you. In your name, amen.